Well, thanks, uh, Jared and team, for leading us in that time of song and reflection. You know, it's been uh, quite a weekend, as it usually is, uh, at Easter here uh, in Langley and around uh, Jericho. We gathered on uh, Friday at Christian Life Assembly with about 1,600 other uh, Christians from all over our city to lift up the name of Jesus, and we sang that song. I felt like it was a little early to sing that song on Good Friday. It's maybe a little more, I think, apropos on uh, an Easter Sunday morning. And then uh, this morning, there were about maybe 80 people, 85 people uh, gathered down at the river at Derby Reach. And for once in the last uh, recent memory, let's call it, uh, it wasn't raining. So this was good news uh, for a sunrise gathering down at 6.15 down uh, at, at Derby Reach. And then we gathered here this morning uh, for breakfast, for brunch at 9 o'clock. And uh, if you missed some of that, the hospitality team, led by Isabel, our fearless leader in hospitality, has packaged up some of the extra pancakes, and you can go home and grab those over at the back table over there and take them home with you uh, afterwards. And so that was a great time uh, being together and eating together and getting to know each other a little bit more. And uh, now here we are in our morning gathering and celebration. And I don't know about what the rest of the weekend looks like for you, but around our house, uh, something happens when nicer weather hits and it coincides with a long weekend. Because when the sun comes out, you begin to notice stuff around your house that you didn't notice when it was rainy and dull and gloomy all through the winter months. Stuff that needs your attention. So a few weeks ago, the sun started streaming through our, our window, our west-facing window, and I thought, boy, there is a lot of dust in our room all of a sudden. I didn't notice it before until the sun started shining into the window. Or uh, then the window seemed dirtier than it was before. And then I noticed, and I went outside, there was kind of a funny green film clinging to the north side of the siding on my house, which I hadn't really paid any attention to before. And then there were weeds in my lawn that I didn't see before and notice before. And then I thought, well, the lawn should be fertilized. There's lots of moss in there. And then there was dead stuff in the garden that I started looking at and seeing that needed to be pulled out. And then I looked and the patio needed to be power washed. And I mean, I didn't care about any of this stuff about two weeks ago when it was all rainy and gloomy. But now that the sun's out, now suddenly there's this little mathematical formula that kicks in, and that is sun plus spouse, plus schedule, equals spring cleaning. Anybody can relate to that? All right. The sun comes out, and suddenly then a little gentle nudge from your spouse that it's a long weekend, and that there's a little maybe more time to do these things, and there's a nice weather that you should get busy with them. It means that even if you didn't necessarily get around to it, you might have been nudged in that direction uh, this weekend, and maybe your spouse will say to you, if that applies, hey, you've got another day still. You can do it tomorrow if you're off tomorrow or this afternoon. Uh, but something like spring cleaning, it, it's very appropriate in terms of a conversation about Easter as we celebrate Easter. Because Easter really is a marker in our calendar, which always coincides with spring, to remind us about newness and about fresh realities and about getting a fresh start, getting rid of the old and we're going to talk this morning as we look at a passage of Scripture in the New Testament. And our ultimate reference point for this is obviously not just a, a dusty window or anything like that. It's the death and the resurrection of Jesus that we celebrate uh, at Easter. And here at Jericho Ridge, 
uh, over the last number of Sunday mornings, we've been looking during our teaching times at one of the early books that was written in the New Testament to try and explain to people who were not physically present the significance of the events of that first Easter weekend. And so the primary purpose of this book, it's the sixth book in the New Testament, it's the book of Romans, it was written to try and explain and try and help us understand a little bit more about the significance of the person and work of Jesus to people who were not actually there for the events themselves. And so the question that comes up again and again and again in the book of Romans that it tries to answer is, what is the significance of the events of the first Easter weekend. The events themselves are recorded in the gospel narratives in the New Testament, in the books of Matthew and Mark, Luke and John. But then as the New Testament goes on and as early historians and Christians reflect back on it, they're trying to explain and wrestle with the concept, not only what happened, but what is important about what happened and why is it significant in some way. And the book of Romans is pretty classic in this regard. It's a bit of a philosophical argument from antiquity that begins a lot of ways that many other arguments uh, from that time period, whether it's Plato or Socrates does. It begins by sketching out a little bit of the challenges or the problem that exists so it can help us understand the solution. And so uh, over the last number of months, we've been going through chapters 2, 3, 4, and 5 of the book of Romans to try and help us understand a little bit in our worldview and in our thinking about what's going on in our world. Why do when we look around, are things broken? Why are there things that are, are significant problems and challenges, both globally and then personally for us as well? Things are not as fresh and as clean and as clear as they sometimes seem. And so one of the things that the book of Romans does is it's like shining the light of the sun, the rays of the sun in on our world and in all of the junk and trying to make sense of it. And it begins to help us notice things that maybe we didn't notice before. So again, back to my spring cleaning example. Uh, because the sun was out, I noticed this green moss that had collected surprisingly in my mind. Apparently this happens every year, but I don't pay attention to it and pervasively on the north side of my garage, as well as on the kids' play structure, and on all of Meg's flower pots, and really on every, every square inch in the backyard of what used to be pristine concrete. And it's amazing to me how far this stuff extends. I mean, it covers every square inch and just takes over. It's everywhere. If you were to look at my driveway and you were to ask a little bit about it and say, well, what's the, what is the primary characteristic of your driveway, Brad, like what's kind of, what's in charge on your driveway? You would have to say that moss rules the roost on my driveway, uh, that it's a mossy driveway, and that uh, the controlling characteristic of my driveway, it's dominated by moss. You can see a little bit. I started to power wash a little bit, and you can see a little of the before and the after in that picture. That, and, and I didn't even know how green the stuff was before I got the power washer, and I thought, wow. That's the color my concrete is supposed to be. It really is quite, quite something under there. And so in Romans, this is the author's argument that Christ's death and resurrection at Easter is necessary because there's a lot of junk that has collected in our lives and in our world and in your life and in mine. 
and the controlling or dominating characteristic of our lives is that it's messy and that it's negative and that it's been tainted in some way. It's been coated and invaded and controlled by something that's slimy and not good. And so the author of Romans has spent a lot of time making the point that stuff just needs to get cleaned up. And so last weekend, here at Jericho, we had six people share their stories about the transforming work of God in their lives and how it was that they came to a place of recognition that something wasn't right in their lives and that they, were, um, they needed something in their world and they needed God. And so they talked about what came, what brought them to that point. They talked about the challenges, about the loss of family members and about eating disorders. And they talked about the things that they still wrestle with in their lives today. And they talked about how having God as a part of their lives doesn't sort of magically make all of the grime disappear. There's still stuff that hurts. There's still stuff to work through. There's still stuff to work on. And that's where the writer takes us today in the book of Romans. And if you have your Bibles, turn to chapter 6. And we're going to explore today the solution to the challenge that he's presented for us in the preceding chapters. And that is God's incredible grace. And we'll explore the power and the mystery of God's grace together. Would you pray with me as we look into God's word this morning? God, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you that it is authoritative for us in life and in practice. It tells us the truth about who we are, about who you are, and about the situation that we see in our world. And so, God, we pray this morning that your word, you would speak to each and every one of us by your word. We open our hearts to receive from you this morning. We open our minds to engage with you this morning, wherever we're at on our spiritual journey. We might be just exploring and thinking about these things in very uh, embryonic form. Or we might be far along on the journey, having celebrated many Easter's, and some of this might feel familiar to us. God, I pray for each person here this morning that you would refresh and renew our hearts and our understanding of the incredible power of your grace in our lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, one of the great things about the Bible is how vivid the word pictures are that are used to try and help us get our minds around some of the concepts that uh, we'll be exploring. And so as we look through Romans chapter 6 about God's grace this morning, if you have your momentum journals, which is a tool that we use to uh, help you get into God's word on a regular basis, uh, then I want you to take some notes or mentally kind of begin to catalog in your mind. There are many, many, many word pictures that are used in just a few short verses here. And so I want you to try and keep track of them as we go through Romans chapter 6. And we'll read through uh, to verse 14. And I'm going to be reading from the message uh, translation this morning because the word pictures really come to life. And I want you to pay close attention. Count how many word pictures that the author uses to try and describe God's grace. And if you're here this morning and you don't have a copy of the Bible, we'd love to give you one as our gift to you. You can just wander over to the Welcome Center after we're finished our time together and talk to Michelle, and she'll make sure that you can uh, send home, uh, uh, take that home with you. It comes with a wonderful gift. Pastor Keith and I will buy you a coffee and answer questions that you have about it. So just connect with us at any point. We would be very pleased uh, to do that with you. So I'll be reading from Romans chapter 6 
and the message translation is going to come up on the side screen here. Romans 6 verse 1, the title is, of this text is When Death Becomes Life, talking about the resurrection. So Romans 6 1 says, so what do we do? Do we just keep on sinning so that God can keep on forgiving? He's been talking about God's incredible grace in, in chapter 5. He says, I should hope not. If we've left the country where sin is sovereign, how can we still live in our old house there? Didn't you realize that we packed up and left there for good? This is what happened in baptism. When you went under the water, we left the old country of sin behind. And when we came up out of the water, we entered the land of the new country of grace, a new life in a new land. The picture of baptism by water, by immersion, is what he's referring to here. That's what baptism into the life of Jesus means. When we're lowered in the water, it's like the burial of Jesus. When we are raised up out of the water, it's like the resurrection of Jesus. Each of us is raised in a light-filled world by our Father so that we can see where we're going in our new grace-sovereign country. Could it be any clearer? Our old way of life was nailed to the cross with Christ. A decisive end to that sin-miserable life. No longer at sin's every beck and call. What we believe is this. If we get included in Christ's sin-conquering death, we also get included in his life-saving resurrection. We know that when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was the signal of the end of death as the end. Never again will death have the last word. When Jesus died, he took sin down with him. But alive, he brings God down to us. So from now on, think of it this way. Sin speaks a dead language that means nothing to you. God speaks your mother tongue, and you hang on every word. You are dead to sin and alive to God. That is what Jesus did. This means, then, that you must not give sin a vote in the way that you conduct your lives. Don't give it the time of day. Don't even run little errands that are connected with that old way of life. Throw yourself wholeheartedly and full-time. Remember, you've been raised from the dead into God's way of doing things. Sin can't tell you how to live. After all, you are not living under that old tyranny any longer. You are living in the freedom of God. So, in 14 short verses there, I want you to shout out what were some of the word pictures that the author used to try and help us understand what happened in the significance of Jesus' death and his burial, and his resurrection, and how you and I, if we choose to participate by faith in the life that Jesus calls us to, what were some of the word pictures that he used to try and picture that for us? Shout them out. A mother tongue. Yeah, so a mother tongue versus a dead language, right, were the contrast. So uh, don't even listen to that. It's, like a, it's a language that you should no longer even know how to speak. You're going to learn a new mother tongue was one word picture. 
Yeah, absolutely. What else? Leaving a house and country behind. There was a language of, of citizenship or a language of, of moving to a new location uh, and thereby a new rules would apply. New, all kinds of new things would come. You've got to leave that old house behind. Yeah, what else? What other language, what other did he, word pictures did he use? A language of employment, yeah. yeah. In fact, at the very end of Romans chapter 6, he, he builds on that employment language, talking about running errands, are you working for that, that person anymore? And at the very end of Romans 6, it says, you can go ahead and work for a senior whole life. A very explicit employment language. It's going to pay you something. It's going to pay you death. Uh, but the, the gift of God, the free gift that God gives you, is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So there's employment language, yeah, all through Romans chapter 6. What else? Another word picture. That you picked up on. Bondage and tyranny. Yeah, and, and trying to help us understand a little bit. Peter, you and I were talking last weekend about people that have lived in, in bondage and under oppression for decades or for even generations or longer than that. They act and they think in a certain way, don't they? And they actually, you and I were saying how they, that you have, to, you have to encourage people to even look you in the eye. When someone has lived under that level of bondage and tyranny before, they internalize that to a place that even if they're freed from that, they continue to think and act as if they're still in bondage and tyranny. And so the language of, of bondage and, and, in fact, slavery is all through Romans chapter 6. Yeah, what else? Other word pictures that come up. There's a metaphor about baptism, yeah. And many times, and in, uh, in a lot of traditions, people will choose Easter Sunday as a date to get baptized for that very explicit and particular reason because in Romans 6, Paul is linking that with the death and the burial of Jesus and then being raised again to new life and new hope. And so in our tradition, we would say baptism is a sign or a symbol of that. It points back to our identification with Christ. And death and burial. Yeah, there's lots of, you guys are good. You must have done very, very well in high school English. So congratulations. Those, there's lots of word pictures that are rich there. There's that country and citizenship language of moving house. There's death and, and burial language happening, funeral language. Life and resurrection contrasts happening. Uh, there's, there's a language of victory, a language of a conqueror coming in and defeating and reigning over a people, or in this case, over a power, over sin and death. There's the language of mother tongue uh, versus a dead language, tyranny and freedom. There's a language of voting. Uh, don't even let it have a vote in your life. Don't even let it have a say in the way that you operate your life anymore. Or vocational language, errand running, all of these things. And one of the first things that we learn about God's grace in Romans chapter 6, is how vast it is that it takes all of this language to try and help us wrap our minds around what it is that Christ has done for us that we celebrate at Easter. Just like the moss on my driveway, grace is so pervasive, it overruns every aspect of the things that we have done, no matter how horrible in our lives. And so in uh, chapter 6, verse 1, you can see somebody thinking to themselves, hey, grace is that good? This is fantastic. If grace is so amazing and so pervasive, 
that must mean I can do anything that I want. And I'll just make an appeal to grace and say, uh, oops, God, uh, sorry, uh, didn't know that well. Uh, better to ask for forgiveness than for permission. So uh, just like a, I'll make an appeal to grace and just like a lenient parent, maybe grace can kick in here a little bit, God. And in fact, some people would follow this logic even further and say, well, I should actually really get out there and live it up, do whatever I want, because really, the more bad things I have going on in my life, the more grace God can pour into my life. So I'm going to experience more and more and more of his grace the more I flaunt it in his face. And so there's an amazing thing that is trying to be packaged for us here about God's grace. Is that, and that is that grace doesn't just cover over our sins with a little kind of parental pat on the head to a young child saying, there, there now. You've done a few bad things, but don't worry. Grace will forgive you. Romans 6 and the language and the tools and the word pictures of Romans 6 are there to help remind us that grace does something more drastic and more potent and more dynamic in our lives than that. It actually comes into our lives with the view to breaking the authority and the power of sin and death in our lives. And the New Testament clearly teaches us that this power comes from one place and one place alone. And that is from the empty tomb. That Christ's victory over sin and death on that very first Easter morning is what gives us a cause to celebrate and what gives us hope because we too can share in his victory. You see, grace doesn't just come and kind of cover over our messes. It's, it's like uh, something totally different needs to happen in our lives. If I just went out into my driveway or onto my uh, fence, which badly needs some painting, and there's a bit of a rotten area in my fence. If I went out into my fence and just painted over a little bit, some of the moss, some of the gunk that's on there, put a little fresh coat of paint on there, that's not actually dealing with the underlying problem or challenge in any way. It's just altering it cosmetically so I feel a little better about what's going on. We actually need a bit more of a drastic solution when it comes to these types of things. So I'm going to wheel this puppy out here. I would love to fire it up, but they will not let us, uh, and the worship team said it would be dangerous if I tried to wield it uh, in here this morning. But uh, this is a good Briggs & Stratton 550 series power washer. This will deal with the root problem on my fence. In fact, if I'm too vicious with it, it will actually take out my fence entirely. Uh, so some of you have uh, given me wise words of caution as to how to go about using these things. Uh, but what we need to do is in that situation with my fence, there's a couple ways I can approach it. I can deal with it cosmetically. It'll look okay, maybe for a little bit, but then that moss and the rot and everything that's under there is just going to kind of corrupt that whole fence. And in a few short months, again, or in a couple of years, the fence isn't going to be worth anything at all. We should have to get right down and try and get rid of that moss that's just totally pervasive on the fence there. And you see, that's what grace does in our lives. Grace doesn't just come and kind of cover over our messes. It's like a high-pressure power 
washer. When you begin to experience the grace of God in your life, it begins to get into those places and blast off that grime and that, that stuff and the grit of the past and of the choices that you've made. And the treatment is not superficial or cosmetic in any way. It actually gets down to the very root of the problem and blasts it clean and fresh as new. Because the problem with our thinking about grace, if we think that, oh, God's just going to cover over a little bit of our messes and, and we'll be okay, it'll be a bit of a cosmetic. Grace is kind of designed, if I go to church a few times, it'll help me kind of become a better person. And that's really all that God wants from my life, isn't it? So many of us get the idea then that what we need to do is we need to kind of clean ourselves up a little bit before we come to God. So we slap a little fresh coat of paint on our lives. We buy a new dress for Easter, try and purge the language, uh, try and change our behavior a little bit. Promise God, you know, I'm going to do better next time around. Uh, and we promise those around us, you know, I'm going to try and do better uh, this next week or this next time. But our heart remains unchanged and untouched in any way. And so here in Romans chapter 6, the gospel proposes a solution for us. And it's a radical solution. And the language that's used is very strong and aggressive language. And it says, the solution for this is that you and I have to die. We have to identify with Jesus' death and allow our old self, our old way of thinking and our old way of acting and doing things to be put to death. You might think, whoa, that's dramatic, a little maybe too strong for the word pictures. But if you pause and you think about it for a minute, think about, I think about my life and my heart and how deep some of that junk goes in my own life. There's moss and garbage in places of my life that's so deep, it's not superficial. Nothing cosmetic is going to help with any of that. I need something deeper than some window dressing to help me be a better person in my life. What I need is a decisive shift of state in a relationship with sin and the power of sin in my life. Think about it this way. My grandfather, who's now uh, in his 80s, was diagnosed uh, with an aggressive form of cancer when he was in his 30s. And in the uh, late 19 or the early 1950s, rather, medical technology was not as precise as it was and sophisticated as it is today. And the cancer was so potent that the best medical advice at the time was to amputate his leg. It was so aggressive that uh, just a cosmetic or superficial treatment would not have dealt with it. And in fact, it was so aggressive that it would have killed him. And so in order to change his body's relationship with the illness that would kill him, they severed his leg. And that's how bad the problem of sin is in your life and in mine. And it's why Romans 6 uses this language of old self and new self to help us understand the relationship that we want to have with God and then with sin. Because being a Christian is not about God performing a couple of cosmetic alterations in your moral life to make you a bit of a nicer or a better person. Grace is much deeper 
and much more profound in its effects than that. I want you to watch this video and you'll see what I mean. This video is called Erase. video pictures for us why we have chosen to call this series in Romans, But Now, and why the subtitle is The Greatest Words Ever Spoken in History. Because the most powerful and the most eternally significant words ever spoken 
over a person's life are the words, you once had this written large across the whiteboard of your life. Whatever that is for you, whatever images or thoughts, actions, behaviors came to mind. But now, the gospel says, because of the power of the risen and reigning Jesus and life and the freedom that he offers you, God is writing something different on your life. And there's two primary images that I want to leave you with today to help this become a reality in your life. And the first one is this image of the power washer and the mossy driveway. And that's to help remind you of the fact that each and every one of us need a deep clean in our lives. Not just a cosmetic or behavioral change that we could manage on our own. Where moss and grime has held dominion in your life, today could be the day for you where God wipes that all clean and fresh. Today could be your but now moment. Today might be your day for a clean slate to begin your life free from the power of sin and death. Life today that begins with God and goes on forever. And don't worry about cleaning yourself up and don't worry about trying to work yourself up into a position where you feel like you're good enough to come to God and explain that to Him. Simply come to God and say, God, I have tried to clean up my whiteboard on my own. I have tried to clean my life up on my own. It has not worked. And simply receive the grace that he offers you and the cleansing that he offers you. The second image is found later in the book of uh, chapter 6 in Romans. We don't have time to read that text, but it's an image that we brought up and is familiar to many, and it's that image of slavery. And the image particularly of newly set free or newly emancipated slaves. And part of the challenge that slaves immediately following the Civil War experienced was that though a word of freedom had been spoken over their lives, they knew that they were free, but it took time and it took an incredible amount of work and training themselves and others to be able to have that penetrate their thinking and their behavior. They were free, but they didn't act like they were free. And so Romans 6 says, you might have moved from the old house into the new house, but you might still in areas of your life feel like you're chained and like you're still a slave to certain aspects or habits or behaviors or other aspects of your life. The resurrection of Jesus promises that the power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead lives in you and in me. And those words of but now can be spoken over your life. And whatever's on your whiteboard can be erased. But now, you might have been dirty. But now, you're clean and cleansed. And so what aspects of your life need a good power washing this morning? What aspects do you need to invite God to do His work by His Spirit in? Another but now phrase, you might have been at one point in your life a slave to sin, but now 
if you have come into the place where you are in relationship with Jesus, you're trusting in him alone and what he did on the cross, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, his ascension. But now you're free. And so the question for you is, are there areas of your life where you still experience bondage? We're going to sing a song which is likely familiar to you. And it's written by a person who was intimately familiar with the language of slavery and freedom because he himself traded in slaves for many years in his life. And he came to a place where God's grace reached down and rescued him and set him free. And he penned one of the most recognized songs in all of Christian history. And it's a song that has language and line after line after line reminding and declaring over your life and mine those but now statements. I once was lost, but now I'm free. And so I'm going to invite you to just join us in singing and in reflecting as the team leads us in some closing songs of response. If you want to respond to God in any way, our prayer team is available just over at the side, just behind the curtains there. If you want to talk with somebody about anything that you're experiencing or that God is talking to you about, then feel free to just wander over to the side there and talk to somebody. The pastoral team will be at the back and you can come and talk to us as well. You can just spend some time also just reflecting in quietness as the team leads us in this song and feel free to join as you feel uh, that you can participate in it. And so this is just an open time of response to allow God to speak to you by His Spirit in whatever way that you need to be spoken to by Him today. It might be your but now moment at this time. I encourage you to take that opportunity.